Hey everyone, what's up? Happy Wednesday. Welcome to Crypto Before Bed. My name is John Cook and I'm your host. Thank you all for listening. So for those who are new, remember that Front Run Crypto is a long form analysis website where we publish one, two, three thousand, four thousand worth of essays that outline like the state of the crypto economy, the broader finance market, and really deep thought pieces on where we think the future will be with respect to crypto and money. In fact, if you go to frontrunnercrypto.com, which is the website, you'll see that our uh, our banner is um, we predict the future of money and technology. That is the thesis of Frontrun Crypto, and that's why we're here. And what I've noticed over the past, uh, I'd say, year or so of doing this is that there is a rapid iteration of news that permeates across the broader crypto and finance market. And it's it's really difficult to stay on top of the news if you're not actively reviewing it every day. One thing that I do as a crypto enthusiast and an individual who's just a finance fan, I'm an open finance maximalist, is I spend quite a bit of time every day traversing the interwebs, looking on Twitterverse, reading the Reddit posts about like what's happening within the crypto space. And I've decided to pivot frontrunnercrypto.com. And in addition to doing these long form analyses that we're going to talk about today, I've decided to also introduce a fun little live stream where 20, 30-ish minutes every day, we go through all of the newest, most popular, most impactful crypto headlines that I've seen across the market. This is crypto and finance. And although I consider myself an ETH and Ethereum, ETH and Bitcoin uh, enthusiast, we're not beholden to a single token. So today for episode two of Crypto Before Bed, we're going to cover many, many topics uh, that there was a lot of news today, Wednesday, 12, 17, that we'll walk through together. And if I pull up my cheat sheet, which I showed you guys last episode, which is my notion, we'll cover, oh, let's see here. Frontruncrypto.com published this morning our 2023 forecast for the S&P 500, which is a broader point of view on the crypto, on the just the finance market in general. We'll spend some time walking through that. Constitution Dow just launched a 2.0 of their bid to buy the U.S. Constitution. They were very close last time. We'll cover that for a bit. Also, go through some new uh, analytics that have been published by Bitcoin Pro, Glassnode and ARC uh, Capital Management, which I think everybody should subscribe to if your goal is to stay afloat of the broader Bitcoin market. Binance also launched uh, an announcement that, that they're going to reduce fees. Very questionable point of view on this. Vitalik uh, dropped a new post. Vitalik's the like executive director of Ethereum and one of the ETH founders about what excites him. I read it this morning and the uh, uh, it was pleasantly surprising. DeFi wasn't that high on the list, and we'll wrap it out. Uh, wrap it up with our friends at Apple introducing a new pseudo tax that ultimately impacts all crypto users. 
it is a closed loop ecosystem that continues to permeate across the Web2 ecosystem. So let's dive into it. If you all go to frontruncrypto.com, uh, number one, the, the catalyst for publishing the S&P 500 2023 forecast with the punchline, Wall Street says not sure, is a reflection about the broader uncertainty that just the Wall Street analysts Wall Street analysts have in today's economic uncertainty. So for those who are unfamiliar, every year all the all of the biggest banks on Wall Street, like Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, uh, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, Credit Suisse, they all publish their prediction of what they think the next 12 months will hold with respect to the broader finance market and the S&P 500. I've been following this for a couple of years and they were completely wrong in 2022, just completely wrong. I posted the URL in the show notes so you guys can check it out. Uh, I, I won't belabor you with the details. It's a pretty long analysis. You can check it on frontcrypto.com. But the pitch is that Goldman Sachs published an analysis of what they expect of their probability for a recession in, in calendar year 2023. They peg a recession at uh, at about 35% against the consensus median forecast of 65%. This is like uh, impactful, not because Goldman Sachs says there's a 35% probability of a recession, but because there's actually like 200 reporting analysts, all who have different opinions. You can see the median forecast here is anywhere between zero to like 80%. This is saying that depending on what bank you talk to, they have a different point of view on what they think will happen with respect to recession in 2023. Goldman Sachs thinks it's 35%. It doesn't really matter what they think. The point we're making here is that it is incredibly complex how these commercial institutions attempt to quantify how they think about recessionary indicators. One metric that I look at that's been right since 1950 is the is the 3-month 10-year yield curve spread. There's a link in the in the article if you all want to check it out and what it outlines is that when the difference between the when yields on the 3-month spread are higher than the 10-year spread, that's considered a yield curve inversion and that is an indicator of a recession and very quickly it's an indicator of recession because it means that investors are fleeing long-term assets in exchange for short duration, usually government bonds, right? And that pushes up the price of new bonds, pushes down the price of long-term assets. That is yield curve inversion. Uh, if you guys want to check it out, you, you should. But like the punchline is that how does this relate to the stock market? The same like analysis these analysts do to quantify a recessionary, a recessionary environment they used to predict the S&P 500. So we can see here that the S&P 500 historical returns since 1994, uh, it's been all over the place. It kind of averages out 10% annualized per year. What we want to point out, though, is that between 2019 and 2021, gangbusters returned for the S&P 500. 27% in 2021. This matters because the consensus leading into 2022 was that when the S&P 500 returns over 25%, the next year is an average return of 14%. So 2022, 2021 returns uh, 28%. The consensus estimate was that on average, 
the S&P 500 will return 14%. And boy, were they wrong. So check out some of these quotes. Truest advisory services going back to 1950. Uh, S&P 500 had at least a 25% return in a year. Stocks usually rose the following year, right? Aaron Gibbs, Main Street Asset Management. Stay in the market. Jessica Rabe, co-founder of Datatrek. The odds are good for a fourth year of 10% growth. Even in even Credit Suisse, who I think is like the invisible hand that controls the global market, uh, they they pushed a price target of fifty two hundred raised from five thousand. It's wild. So check this out. You can see that BMO fifty three hundred. Okay, so just back up. You can see uh, the S and P closed at forty seven hundred in twenty twenty one. All right, so keep that as a frame as a frame of reference. We can see that BMO published. Uh, like a 10% increase, 5,300, 5,200 Credit Suisse, Citigroup, 5,100, Goldman Sachs, 5,100, Deutsche Bank, 5,000. Even the bearish indicators, the uh, like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, their bear case was 4,400 to 4,800. At the time of this podcast and writing, we can see that uh, the S&P 500 sits at 3931, right? So you can tell they were all off in 2022, which leads us now to 2023. What are they predicting? And again, it's all over the place, which is why we called the article, uh, we're not sure, because on the bull side, we have like Deutsche Bank, Wells Fargo pushing 4,500 estimates, BMO, Jeffries, JP Morgan in the 42, 4300 estimates, and even the bearish, even bearish banks, not that bearish, all they're saying is it's going to be neutral to slightly, slightly lower. Like Barclays, for example, remember we're at 3931 in the SP 500 as of this recording. Barclays is forecasting 3600 by uh, the end of 2023 with the following quote. We acknowledge some upside risks to our scenario analysis, right? Upside risks, that's what they call gains, given post-peak inflation, strong consumer balance sheets, and a resilient labor market. However, current multiples are baking in a sharp moderation of inflation and ultimately a soft landing. Current multiples are baking in a, so in a, sh a sharp moderation. That means companies are posting uh, lower than expected earnings growth in the next 12 months. And they don't think there's going to be soft landing, soft landing, which means Barclays thinks the Federal Reserve is going to keep pushing, keep pushing the Fed funds rate until we're at a steady state of about 0.2 percent per month, or like two and a half percent per year, right? So my thesis off this, and I encourage everyone to read this and form your own opinion, is I actually took a position in the market in 2022 mid-year where we deployed about three hundred thousand dollars to. A broad basket of of equities I could post at a later time, and that result six months in, it's it's net net a wash, right? Uh, I did not outperform that the market. It was actually a neutral to negative scenario, right? So that's a another way to say this is if I just bought short duration treasuries like three six month yields, three six month uh, maturity dates that it have a 4% yield, I probably would have beat the market right now. So, and just, we go on to talk about how the broader macro economists 
are forecasting a recession in March, April 2023. And all of that leads me to say is if you look at like the venture funds and venture investments uh, over the past three years, this is a meta study of 185 venture funds. And they aggregated, this is from FactSet, aggregated an asset value, which is the which is the uh, value of the equity in the firm, plus the paid-in capital, which is the amount invested by the VCs, plus the distributed amount, which is the amount paid out to the VCs, plus the change in asset value. And what they're seeing is if it, there's been for sure growth over the past 10 years, but if you look at 2019, 2020, 2021, 2020 becomes problem problematic because the net asset value has doubled the total invested value in the previous years. Isn't that crazy? The asset appreciation of the 185 venture funds has appreciated more than the paid in capital from the previous year. All of this means, according to FactSet, and I share the same sentiment, is if the enormous net asset values aren't captured through distributions, the gains may evaporate for general and limited partners just as easily as it arrived. What they're saying is that uh, on the backdrop of economic uncertainty, the general partners are going to have to take profits. This is captured through distributions. And if they don't do it quickly, those losses, uh, it will be realized losses, which candidly creates a downward spiral. Reduced earnings create pressure to sell, create reduced earnings, create pressure to sell, create reduced earnings. So my thesis is that uh, if I were to draw a line in the sand, I'm predicting a bear market in 2023. We're gonna, it's going to be a flat year, best case, 300. What's good about these type of uh, videos is that ultimately we can look at this 12 months from now and figure out if we were right or wrong. But my position as of 12-7-2022 is we're going to be in for a cold, cold winter. Let's pivot to crypto. On a lighter topic, the Constitution DAO, I saw this this morning. I was like, oh, this is fantastic. I have to talk about this. Check this out, guys. So for those who don't remember, the const there are only uh, two, there are only two what constitutions that are that are available for purchase, right? The last one went up for auction at Sotheby's uh, by a DAO called Constitution DAO. These guys are savages. In seven days, they raised $42 million, right? But ultimately they lost, they were outbid uh, by by Ken Griffin, who I think and ultimately paid $47 million. So what's interesting here is that Constitution Dow is gonna re-up and attempt to make a bid in this coming calendar year, but they're going to do it slightly differently. Okay, so earlier this year, the announcement that they would sell the other original painting of the Constitution was privately owned, okay? Last year, they used uh, they used Juicebox as the fundraising. Uh, they used Juicebox as the DAO and the fundraising platform. But the downfall is that the other bidders knew how much the Constitution DAO had because the DAO is on Ethereum and it, Ethereum's layer one platform where you could see the transactions in flight, right? So this year, 
Constitution DAO 2.0 is moving to they're moving to our coalition over the past weeks. Let's see. Our coalition over the past weeks has grown. Constitution DAO wants to buy the printing from the auction. What is different this time around? Let's go to the website and check it out really quick. I think what's different about this DAO is that the actual DAO has a mechanism to hide the funds. So it's not, uh, fr it's not, yeah, here it is. Okay. This no, okay. This November, there was an announcement that the auction of the auction of the other privately held constitution, people DAO, Nucleo, Juicebox, Aztec have banded together, learning from our lessons last year. We will use a combination of public and private fundraising to hide our bidding ammo. So this is interesting because I think what they're saying here is the reason they lost is not because they didn't have enough money. The reason they lost is because the amount of money they had was visible to the competitors. I think this is certainly worth participating in, and it's something I will be participating in in the spirit of like transparent and open markets. If you guys want to participate, the link's in the show notes. Just throw in a couple, just throw in 20 bucks. It's going to be exciting. I wonder what, what technology is it built on. Constitution DAO is a cultural moment. People DAO. We'll table that and check it for next for next time, but... Constitution DAO 2.0 coming, and now the bid amounts can be hidden. Cool. Now, what's going on in the Bitcoin market? So I, I actually read three articles this morning that I thought were that I thought are worth sharing. Right, on-chain data showing a potential a potential bottom. Bitcoin capital asset reset. All the all the tourists have left, and then Arc published their November twenty twenty two Bitcoin monthly report. We can go through all three. I'm gonna start with Arc. Although Kathy Woods, uh, she's a little wild one. She posted. I don't know if you guys saw her uh, her interview like last week. I think she predicted. No, she bought six hundred thousand shares of GBTC last week. So she is committed to the mission of Bitcoin. And I think her rationale behind GBTC is that it's trading at a discount, right? GBTC net asset value. We can check this very quickly. Yeah, I'm, I'm convinced it actually is. So GBTC is trading at 43% discount relative to its underlying, which means that $1 of Bitcoin is worth about 60 grayscale Bitcoin, uh, 60 cents of grayscale Bitcoin trust shares. So it's trading at a discount because there's number one um, a lot of uncertainty with with uh, Gemini, the liquid the liquidity status of Gemini, which is owned by the same parent company that owns Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. I wrote more about that on FrontrunCrypto.com if you're interested. But Kathy Woods and all of the buyers of GBTC think that their thesis is that uh, Grayscale is solvent. All the Bitcoin is there. Genesis will be fine digital currency will be fine and eventually the sec will acquiesce and actually grant schedule m regulation which is the conversion of the trust 
to ETF. And when GBTC is converted to an ETF, it will actually push GBTC back up to the spot price of Bitcoin. And that will be, boom, a 40, an instant 43% return for all, for all shareholders, of which Kathy Woods is one. That is why she's buying it. So in the November 2022 report, uh, you guys should all subscribe to this. It comes out once a month. Again, FTX is like at the centerpiece of this. I won't like regurgitate uh, the FTX specifics, but what we can conclude is the ratio between Bitcoin's realized profits and realized losses has reached the ratio between the realized profits and the realized losses. Oh, is that an all-time low? suggesting record-breaking capitulation, right? That means all the holders are actually selling their Bitcoin at losses. It's narrowing the profit and loss gap. And of course, the next, the next step is net outflows from the exchange are at an all-time high. There's also Bitcoin hash rate corrected as miners face significant compression from profit margins. But, but the good news is that long-term profit holders did strong. As long-term holder supply stabilized, it's 13.8 million BTC. What's uh, what's worth what's worth calling out is that about 70% of all the Bitcoin is held by long-term holders who are whales. That means individuals who have held Bitcoin and hold more than 100 Bitcoins for more than one year. So that population represents 70% of the total Bitcoin Bitcoin hold Bitcoin holders, which is why you can see that to this point, long-term holders stood strong because they've been standing strong, right? They probably bought it like at pennies on the dollar. When we look at the broader uh, network activity for Bitcoin specifically, we can see that mining difficulty uh, is down as a result of reduced demand, but also minor revenue is down. I'm gonna post an article that actually shows how to mine Bitcoin so that way you can get into the mechanics of how to actually calculate profitability and loss. I used to do this in the past, so it's gonna be nice to get back into it. Right, their thesis, Kathy Wood, our, our exposition of course is that Bitcoin is undervalued uh, and she has a bullish view bullish view in supply chain profit, bullish view in short-term holder cost basis, okay? Short-term holder cost basis means that all the individuals who have recently entered the new the Bitcoin market, what is their cost basis? And it's at $18,757. And I think at the time of this at the time of this analysis, it's about $16,000. So the difference between the short-term holder cost basis and the current spot price of Bitcoin is maybe 5%, right? And of course, the FTX, the FTX uh, fallout continues to permeate throughout, um, throughout the broader crypto ecosystem. ARK's view is that FTX's insolvency is one of the most damaging events, worse than Mt. Gox in 2014. Caused by, yeah, and I think their point of view is that it's worse because it's caused by one of the most revered leaders in the industry. That's the industry's fault. The collapse could delay institutional crypto adoption by several years and give regulators to make to take draconian measures, right? 
filing suggests that unethically and illegally SBF transferred $4 billion of customer deposits and other assets to Alameda to meet margin calls during the Terra Luna collapse in May. And also insult to injury, the bankruptcy filing of FTX disclosed that corporate funds were used to purchase personal property, boats, yachts of about $1 billion. Yikes. And we can see that it's truly a cluster within the FTX ecosystem, just how uh, how FTX, the bankruptcy of FTX is permeated across many participants, including Digital Currency Group, which again is the owner of CoinDesk, Genesis, which is, uh, which is a crypto primary broker, as well as... Je as well as, uh, gosh, I'm slipping, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, right? All three of those operate in tandem. This doesn't look like there's really an entry point, but we can see if we just kind of start in the middle. There's there's Digital Currency Group, owns Coindesk, owns Grayscale, owns Genesis. Digital Currency Group, $350 million loan to a small group of investors. That's a liability. Digital Currency Group also has a $575 million loan. That's due May 2023. Not good. So that's what, about a billion dollars right there. Genesis Global Capital, which again is owned by DCG, needs $1 billion, which is reduced to $500 million to offset uh, liquidity risks that they had from FTX. Where is Grayscale on this? Yeah, Grayscale Trust is trading at a deep discount. We've disclosed that already. And they're unwilling to show proof of reserves. This is going to be a damning move if they don't show proof of reserves. But we know that they are in Coinbase, uh, Coinbase's custody. And Coinbase released a statement, but it's not the same as actually going on the blockchain and verifying, uh, verifying the actual wallet addresses where the crypto is stored. So that's that's problematic. And we'll we'll wrap up the FTX point of view here with their position on major venture capital and crypto industry leaders being exposed, which again I think is through their malfeasance, right? That's just like lazy, lazy analysis. Arc's view is bearish. While the full financial ramifications remain unclear, FTX owes an overall sum of three billion dollars to its top fifty creditors, including two hundred twenty million to its largest creditor. I think Alameda Research actually owns more. I think Alameda Research has a... Who is it? Gemini. Who does Alameda Research owe $650 million to? BlockFi. Right, so BlockFi's lending desk loaned Alameda Research $650 million. That was guaranteed by FTT tokens that went to zero. And then SBF had to personally step in and guarantee the loan with his position in Robinhood, right? So I don't think that's accounted for here because the position in Robinhood is under an S is under an SBF affiliate entity and not FTX directly. But if we just assume what we're saying here to be true, uh, there's at least a billion dollars, um, at least three billion dollars in liabilities after investing more than 1.6 billion Sequoia Capital to uh, Tamasic, SoftBank, Paradigm, 
have marked their uh, investments down to zero. And such is life. Maybe they should do more due diligence and explore like the actual tokenomics of FTT and all these other centralized layer ones that they've invested in and realized that uh, if no revenue accrues to the token, it's a worthless token, right? That is a fact every time. Let's move to Binance because they also made an interesting announcement today that they reduced trading fees. I didn't have a chance to read this in great detail, but uh, on Twitter, Binance US cutting trading fees as it battles customer cash, as it battles for customer cash following the collapse of FTX. It's from Bloomberg. Firm offers zero fees for Ethereum trading native token discount. Oh, okay. Wow, this is actually cheaper than what Coinbase, Coinbase is doing right now. I think this is a run from Binance to actually capture the U.S. market. Because I think Binance right now is the largest exchange by, like, by multiple markers. Binance, largest exchange metrics. Let's look on Dune Analytics and see. Yeah, Binance accounts for all trading volume. Let's see if we can get more data on Dune. Nope, this is like Dune wouldn't have it actually because Dune is decentralized exchanges. Binance is a centralized one. So Binance exchange metrics. Yeah, this isn't a good move. So if we look on coin market cap, we can see total trading volumes, Binance, $10 billion. That's 10 times larger than uh the Coinbase exchange. And I think by moving, by Binance moving uh, Ethereum fees to zero, they are making a run for the Coinbase position, which I think owns, what if we just look at the top? Yeah, it's not even close. Binance's trading volume is greater than the sum of two, three, two, three, four, five, six, seven, Yeah, this is wild. These are in 10 billion, at least, at least the top nine. I don't welcome this position because I think Binance operate, operates as an unregulated machine. The position here is that Coinbase and Binance have two separate laws, right? Coinbase is regulated by the SEC, domiciled in the United States, and therefore is subject to regulation and policies set forth by U.S. regulators. Binance, although having a Binance U.S. entity, is not beholden to the same laws and rules as Coinbase. I'm going to post an analysis in the coming weeks doing a deep dive on Binance, the BNB token, and I think there's, there's something questionable there. I'm not sure that the BNB token actually justifies the price it's trading at now. Right, I think BNB is trading at, let's see what Coindesk says, 283. I, I'm not sure how much revenue actually accrues to this token, whether it's like a buyback and burn or if the actual exchange accrues some percentage revenue to BNB. But Binance controlling 75% of all tra crypto transactions and then in turn offering 0% trading, 0 zero fee Ethereum trading uh, is going to further 
erode Coinbase's domestic dominance. We have to proceed with caution on that. Which leads us to the next topic. I thought this this intertwines nicely as Coinbase's uh, fiscal year 2023. Fiscal year. This is, this is a typo. They mean 2023 revenues, not 2022. Yeah, Coinbase. This came out on what twelve seven yeah, Coinbase CEO sees revenue falling fifty percent or more in crypto route. Let's take a moment and review it. Last year in twenty twenty one, we did about seven billion dollars in revenue and four billion dollars to positive EBITDA, and this year everything coming down. It looks like about roughly half of that or less. Coinbase previously indicated that it may see a, a 2022 loss of no more than 500 million based on adjusted EBITDA. That's, you got to watch the Ford's adjusted EBITDA, right? That is after they back out. All right, so you have earnings before interest tax depreciation and depreciation and appreciation, and then you back out like one-time events that are special cases to the firm, and it's called an adjusted EBITDA. I'm curious to know what the actual EBITDA is versus what the adjusted amount is. And maybe we can just take a look really quick at um, coin. I don't have, uh, oh, uh, let's see if I can do this. Coinbase Google Finance. That might be the easiest way. Yeah, we can see Coinbase from the IPO high of 350 now trading at 44. $9 billion market cap. Oh, it's not even profitable anymore. The P ratio is trading it. That's interesting. That's interesting. We can see the P ratio is zero. Coinbase was trading in like forward, forward earnings, like maybe five times revenue, six times. Let's see what happened. Oh, here it is. Here it is. So 2021. September was profitable, December was profitable, March, yeah, this was the um, DeFi winter from the summertime, there is capital, and then more capitulation with FTX over the past couple months, and now they're not profitable, which is why the CEO of Coinbase is saying, uh, is advocating for Damn, that's bad. Yeah, he's projecting lower than expected earnings growth, revenue falling 50% or more. I'm going to do an actual... Um, I'm going to do an actual analysis, a pro forma analysis of Coinbase myself and see what I think the actual long-term share price of Coinbase will be. That's going to be in the coming weeks as well. i got a lot of work to do on that. But I think Coinbase is deep value. There's an opportunity there for sure. If we assume that the crypto Coinbase is, uh, that's in Coinbase's custody is actually there, which we do, then once we emerge from this crypto winter, I, th I think there might be substantial upside. But I have to look at their balance sheet first before I can make any statement. But that's coming soon. And then last but not least, let's look at uh, Vitalik's uh, new posting as well as the Apple crypto tax. Vitalik, uh, again, within the Ethereum ecosystem, 
published a long analysis that uh, you all should check out. But he outlines what's important to him as a co-creator of Ethereum and what he's excited for, right? And at its core, right, we believe that Ethereum is a settlement layer for, for financial transactions. And that is why he continues to echo money is what permeates, like, what he is the most excited about specifically money in developing nations that are subject to like questionable monetary policy that produces uh, an inflationary headwind that might devalue right uh the earnings power of local citizens and his north star is in this example when he visited argentina last year one of the experiences i remember was walking around christmas day looking for a coffee shop passing by about five closed ones, and then we found one that was open. When we walked in, the owner recognized me, and he immediately showed me that he has ETH and other crypto assets on his Binance account. Ooh, not good. We ordered tea and snacks and asked if we could pay in ETH. The coffee owner, coffee shop owner obliged, gave him the QR code, and I sent $20 of ETH. All right, that's pretty sick. But... His position is that unlike wealthy countries of the United States where financial transactions are easy to make and 8% of inflation is considered extreme, in Argentina and many other countries in the world, links to global financial systems are more limited and extreme inflation is a reality every day, right? Cryptocurrency is a mechanism to counter extreme inflation. Again, if we believe that ETH is deflationary, we talked about this yesterday, we'll go back to it again. Inflationary, right, is where... Uh, the protocol, the Ethereum protocol issues more tokens than it burns, right? And Ethereum is deflationary when the Ethereum protocol burns more tokens than it issues. And you call this like the um, ultrasound money, right? And you can look at the supply curve and we can see what is this right now? The, the 18th, ETH is inflationary. November 18th, ETH is deflationary. December 6th, ETH is inflationary. So we're getting there. We're burning 600,000 ETH per year. But to Vitalik's point, this idea that crypto, specifically Ethereum, is a mechanism to counter extreme inflation is something that is truly possible in our lifetime. Right. He also goes on to echo the value of stable coins. But I think there's one point that I wanted to call out here that was really interesting to me. And his thesis on DeFi is to keep it simple. Like what what a concept, right? DeFi is turned into an overcapitalized monster that relied on unsustainable unsustainable forms of yield farming and is now in the early stages of setting setting down into a stable medium, improving security and refocusing on new applications that are particularly valuable. Right, stable coins that are decentralized will forever be the most important DeFi products. But what he called out, I found interesting, is like prediction markets. So like poly market, if you want to like make a position on where you think the who's going to win the World Cup, who's going to be the twenty twenty four U.S. president, you can use poly market or even metacalculus to do this. Right, um, I haven't seen much traction with respect to prediction markets but that could be an interesting area to um explore and vitalik says 
I expect prediction markets to not make extreme multi-billion dollar splashes, but continue to grow steadily and become more useful over time. Other synthetic assets, right? So these consider these to be derivatives. Interesting that he calls this out. Other synthetic assets, the formula behind stablecoin, can in principle be replicated to other real-world assets. Interesting natural candidates include major stock indices. Oh, that's interesting. And real estate. The latter will take longer to get right due to inherent heterogeneity and complexity of the space. I think we already have like crypto tokens that you can acquire crypto tokens where it grants you access to physical world goods. What is that? I think it's Goldfitch, right? Gold, Goldfitch crypto. Yeah. Decentralized global crediting protocol. Yeah. Real yields from real companies, really. Okay. So this is a decentralized protocol where you put in your Ethereum and then you have the opportunity to invest in uh, initiatives that are important to you, like African innovation, Latin American stability. And I think there's also an opportunity to invest in physical real estate, global multi-sector loans, global multi-sector loans, asset finance loans in Kenya, small business loans in Africa, global multi-sector loans, consumer loans in Nigeria. Let's, uh, these are paying 17%. What's open right now? Goldfinch Senior Pool, Automated Diversified Folio, Carious Fund 4, Africa Innovation Pool. Is this physical assets in the real world or is it like loans for independent organizations in African fintechs? I think that's what it is. Hmm, maybe not. These are these are like interesting yields though. Smartphone financing in Mexico. Proceeds from this pool will go towards paying growing Payjoy's lending operations in Mexico using this capital. Payjoy's finance Payjoy's finance the purchase of mobile phones for their customers and will be repaid with interest. That's pretty damn interesting. So this is what Vitalik means when he says other synthetic assets, like creating creating crypto pools, right, where you can provide liquidity to them, and then the liquidity transcends to like a real-world asset or a real-world business. In this case, it was Payjoy taking, taking uh, depositors ETH and using that to finance cell phone purchases for individuals in Mexico, right? That's a pretty creative use case, right? And of course, he goes on to advocate uh, the future is bright in the identity space, ENS, POAPs, SB, SBTs. I tend to agree. And of course, DAOs are there. I think, DAO, I think DAOs, um, DAOs are now par for the course. So although I am appreciative of DAOs, I think within 2023, there is going to be a growing consensus around stablecoins, specifically decentralized stablecoins plus the emergence of more, I call these exotic or bespoke investment vehicles like on Goldfinch Finance. But who is stopping that? 
who is stopping the proliferation of crypto? It's our friends at Apple. Apple's overreach of trying to tax crypto transactions is uncovering how broad their definition of OS jurisdiction they think they have. According to Apple, any financial transactions through an OS app is an Apple taxable event. Now imagine they try to apply that to Zelle or Venmo. This is why I wanted to bring this up. So everybody knows that uh, Apple has a 30% developer tax. You deploy an app on the Apple store. You want to make an in-app purchase. Apple takes 30% of the cut. The other 70% goes to the developers. Apple's applying that same framework to crypto transactions. If you want to buy an NFT using an iPhone app, Apple's going to take 30%, right? If you want to send or transact crypto from one person to another using an iPhone app, Apple's going to charge 30%. The hypocrisy in this is that it's not being equally applied. These transactions, these rules aren't being applied for Zelle, Venmo, or Bank of America. I think it's uh, an incredible double standard and an attempt for Apple to just further control the market, right? And here's a take from Coinbase. Apple's claim is that the gas fees required to send NFTs need to be paid through their in-app purchase program so they can collect 30% of the gas fees. This is wild. This is wild, man. So they can collect 30% of the gas fees. For anyone who understands how NFTs and blockchains work, this is not possible. Apple's proprietary in-app purchase system does not support crypto, so we couldn't even comply even if we tried. All right. The biggest impact from this policy change is on the iPhone users that own NFTs. If you hold the NFT in your wallet on the iPhone, Apple just made it harder for you to transfer NFTs to other wallets or gift that to other friends or family members. In closing, Apple has introduced new policies to protect their profits at the expense of co consumer investment, NFTs, and developer innovation across the crypto ecosystem. For shame on Apple. This is why I'm incredibly excited about the Solana phone. I know this is a hot take, and um, it's still very questionable. I think I'm going to pre-order it, though. The Solana phone is an open-source phone that's built on the, on the Android ecosystem, but it integrates with uh, Solana DeFi apps, right? So you down, you get the Solana phone. You can go to like the Solana NFT marketplace, go to Solana DeFi protocols, and transact uh, fee free because it's an open source ecosystem phone. Apple needs to step their game up for sure. Otherwise, it's going to be more problems as they progress into the next bull run. But with that said. That's the end of today's Crypto Before Bed, Episode 2. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you want more long-form analysis, deep-dive explorations on the broader crypto and finance market, of course, check out FrontRunCrypto.com. It's all in the show notes. You can go to Twitter. I post a bunch of stuff there all the time. Until tomorrow, remember... Crypto is risky. You should only put in what you afford, what you honestly think you can afford to lose, right? Always do your own research. Until next time, guys. Thanks.